Welcome to this week's sermon audio from Covenant Presbyterian Church of Fort Smith. Covenant is a church devoted to theological depth, intimate relationships, joyous worship, relentless evangelism, and sacrificial service. Coming up, a sermon from our series, Romans, the Gospel for Sinners. Here now is our pastor, Dr. John Clayton. Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. Hear now the reading of God's holy, inerrant, inspired word. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. The grass withers. The flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's go to him in prayer. Our gracious God, we ask that you would prepare your hearts to accept your word. Silence in us any voice but your own, and that in hearing we may also obey your will. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. It's like, a, like a, a charge, like a rallying cry of the elect. Paul exclaims at the conclusion of chapter 8, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I mean, think about that. There's, there's nothing temporal nor spiritual. Nothing today or forever. Nothing in or out of time or space. No one or nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And it's, it's a statement of truth, both exhilarating and comforting. Both celebratory and assuring. While such truth gives assurance of our own salvation, what about those who have never believed? How many of us have family? How many of us have friends? How many of us have neighbors who have not confessed with their mouth that Jesus is Lord? Have not believed with their hearts that God raised Him from the dead? And as Christians, we know certainly that with the heart one believes and is justified. With the mouth one confesses and is saved. But how many of our loved ones have rejected the gospel? Are under God's wrath due His imminent judgment? How many of those we know don't know Jesus our Lord? Such thoughts should not rob us of our assurance and the joy of it. But they should encourage 
a sense of humility and lead us to lament the peril of the lost. Such as Paul's lamentation here in our passage. His lamentation for his kinsmen according to the flesh. What does Paul know? Paul knows they need the gospel. And he's not ashamed to preach it, is it? As he started out in chapter 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek or the Gentile. But as a chosen people, as a favored nation, to whom the gospel was first delivered, they rejected their Messiah. They denounced His gospel. They crucified their King. Though the gospel is the power of God for salvation, they treated it as powerless revealing their lack of faith in the very God that they professed to serve. And it's a sad testimony indeed, one that warrants, as I said, humility on our part, but also trust in the sovereignty of God. For Paul's lamentation does not reject God's loving purpose, nor does it imply that God has failed. In fact, if you look down to verse 6, Paul says that very thing, doesn't he? He says, it is not as though the word of God has failed. On the contrary, both Jew and Gentile alike, for those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. To those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Don't forget what we have already considered in Scripture up to this point. Paul does not mourn because God has failed Israel. Nor does he question God's sovereign, redemptive purposes. But on this side of heaven, as Paul considers it, he has great sorrow. He has great anguish, unceasing anguish, as he sees his kin reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. Only God knows those whom he foreknew. Only God knows those whom he predestined. But the outward evidence of Israel's rejection is disheartening, as Paul observes it. Paul knows that those who are justified through faith will never be glorified, but are doomed. And so Paul, in these first five verses of chapter 9, he laments with a fleshly lamentation. As if to convince us of his sincerity or to solemnize his admission with a clear conscience by the Holy Spirit and speaking the truth as a Christian, Paul reveals to us, interestingly enough, his inner turmoil, doesn't he? So burdened is he with this great sorrow, this unceasing anguish as he calls it, in his heart he wantonly Think about this. He wantonly wishes that he could sacrifice his own salvation for the sake of his people. For the sake 
of his fellow countrymen. If he could, he says that he would willingly be accursed, suffering the damnation of hell, that he would cast off, be cast off from Christ without any hope of salvation. And it is a startlingly somber statement, seemingly sabotaging the celebration of the preceding verses. Hmm. But Paul's sobriety has purpose. And the purpose goes well beyond this confession in these first five verses. The truth is, and Paul knows it, he can't become accursed. As he was saved by God's grace through faith in Christ, it was not his own doing, but it was an inconvertible gift. Nor can he be cut off from Christ. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. <laughs> there are no returns. There are no exchanges with God's gift of salvation. What God has done, according to his eternal, <clears throat> according to his eternal and immutable purpose and the secret counsel and good pleasure of His will, He has done it. Paul can neither nullify his redemption nor transfer it to his kindred. And he knows it all too well. But it doesn't keep his heart from breaking. And that's the point. That's the point. In an age of isolating protectionism, in an age of selfish ambition, in an age of obsession with individual rights, it is very easy, hear me clearly, it is very easy for you to concern yourself with you. Even distorting the doctrine of sovereign grace into some kind of smug, indifference for the perishing, especially for those who don't share your opinions. Paul's lamentation sounds foreign to ears that are trained to hear the dialect of self-interest. Now, to be clear, when we hear of no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, we rightly rejoice when we hear of the Spirit's indwelling presence and the life He brings, we certainly celebrate. When we hear of our adoption as children of God and His fatherly love for us, we justly joy in it. When we hear of God's foreknowledge, when we hear of God's predestination, His calling, His justification, His glorification, let me tell you, we are appropriately astonished at the sovereign grace of God. But when our assurance leads to indifference, we treat the gospel as a gift to be hidden and harbored rather than a treasure to be shared. Let me say that again. I want you to hear this clearly. When we treat our assurance, when our assurance leads us to indifference, we treat the gospel as a gift to be hidden or harbored 
rather than a treasure to be shared. Paul wants to share the treasure with his family. He wants them to know of God's love in giving His only Son. He wants them to believe in Him that they should not perish. He wants them to have eternal life. He wants them to believe this gospel first delivered to them and through them to the world. He wants His family. He wants His friends. He wants His neighbors. I mean, man, He even wants those who tried to kill Him. Those whom He referred to as brothers and fathers. He wants them to know the power of God for salvation is in Christ alone. And so it breaks Paul's heart. And it should break ours too. Christian, can you honestly say that you wish you were accursed and caught off for Christ for the sake of your neighbor? I, I don't know that I can. As I search my heart, I, I just don't know that I'm there in my Christian maturity. As I examine my heart and ask you to do the same, I'm not sure that God has matured me in Christ Jesus enough to be able to say that with Paul. But it's telling, isn't it? Sadly, we who are often so eager to trumpet the doctrines of grace, we who are often so eager to fight for the Christian good of our culture, we're often the same ones who couldn't care less for the eternal soul of our neighbor. In our zeal for the moral good of our country, we often seem content for our countrymen to burn in hell. In fact, I wonder sometimes if we wish they would. Perhaps the culture war we're supposedly fighting is a distraction from the souls we should be winning. Whatever the case, it should break our heart that our hearts don't break for the lost. And let this be a point of examination. Ask yourself, as I ask myself, do you love your neighbor as yourself? James counsels, let us speak and so act as those are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. May we who have received mercy be motivated by it. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Of course, as we think about Paul's concern for his kin and countrymen, we must realize, to be clear, it's not just any country that breaks his heart, is it? I mean, unlike any country since, or any country before, they were a favored nation. Ancient Israel was the one and the only. As Paul describes it here in the passage, look with me at verses 4 and 5. This is amazing. To them belong the adoption as sons, 
the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple worship, the promises, to them belong the patriarchs. And from, by descent, came Christ. Paul's sanctified desire is not just for any people, although we can understand it as such, but it is specifically here in this passage for the Israelites, those whom God adopted in Abraham to be a great nation through whom the families of the earth shall be blessed, as it was read earlier from Genesis chapter 12. For no inherent reason, think about this, for no inherent reason, God chose the children of Jacob, also known as Israel, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, setting them aside as His covenant people. Such a distinction did not convey salvation, but through them, salvation came. In Christ Jesus, one of their race, according to the flesh, Paul says. With Israel, think about this, with Israel was the splendor of the divine presence of God in first the tabernacle and then the temple. When we read of the account of Solomon's dedication to the temple, it is extraordinary. So the glory of God dwelled among ancient Israel. To Israel was given, think about it, the Abrahamic covenant. Wait, there's more. The Mosaic Covenant. Wait, there's more. The Davidic Covenant. All of them pointing to the new covenant in Christ. And as Israel's covenant maker, as Israel's covenant keeper, God gave them the guardian of His divine will. Divine instruction for worship. And the Spirit carried promises. If we know our Bibles, we know reaching all the way back to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and pointing all the way forward to Christ, from the promise, through the people of promise, to the promised one, the Israelites were a people most privileged, and I might add, best positioned to believe. And as a whole, they didn't. They didn't believe. Now there's much to be said and I'm going to speak more to this in coming sermons as we work through this ninth chapter. But at this point, what I want to focus on is a often misunderstood point. So hear me clearly. Privilege does not presume pardon. Let me say that again. Privilege does not presume pardon. Now let me explain to you what I mean by that. Though an Israelite could trace his family tree all the way back to Abraham, heritage does not save. Though God gave Abraham the sign and the seal of circumcision, and to Israel through him, circumcision does not save. Though God gave Moses the law, think about that, the perfect revelation of his will, the law does not save. Though there is great benefit in privilege, it does not presume pardon. As Paul reminds the Israelites in the fourth chapter of Romans, which we looked at, he says that Abraham was not, and I quote, justified by works, but believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. 
Or to put it another way, Abraham was justified by faith, not favor. This should serve as a reminder to us. Think about this. We who have received the blessing of the new covenant, we are indeed a privileged people. And there is great privilege, if you think about it, there is great privilege in being raised in a Christian home, in receiving the sign and the seal of baptism, in hearing the gospel preached Lord's Day after Lord's Day. But unless you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you are not counted right in God's sight. The home in which you were raised can teach moral goodness, but it cannot make you good enough in the sight of God. Baptism can set apart the child of the covenant, but unless there is conversion, you are judged a covenant breaker. The gospel is the good news we believe, but unless we believe it, it's not good news at all. Examine your hearts, I ask you. Examine your hearts even in this moment and do not spurn the favor of God as Israel did. We are a privileged people, but only faith in Christ will save you. And so as we consider Paul's lamentation, to be clear, as some have read it as hyperbole, it's not. It is a man who loves the Lord. It's a man who loves his people, and he is heartbroken. He knows, think about it, he knows the eternal consequences of rejecting Christ. He knew then, as we know today, that all, Jew and Gentile alike, who do not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ will spend eternity in hell. There is no favored status in the lake of fire. Only torment, eternal anguish, regardless of race. And so we join Paul in lamenting. But we also join Paul in praying for the people through whom according to the flesh came Jesus Christ, our Lord. Even today, we pray for the Israelite wherever he or she may be found, trusting in the sovereign grace of God to advance His gospel, bring new life by His Spirit, and unite the child of Israel with Israel's Messiah. As our larger catechism teaches us, and I love the way it teaches us to pray, it says, we pray that the kingdom of sin and Satan be destroyed, the gospel propagated throughout the world, The Jews called, the fullness of the Gentiles brought in. That's good prayerful instruction. Our hearts and therefore our prayers are for those who would see Jesus for who He is. Who is He? The Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. For Jesus was born a child of Israel, the son of a virgin, born under the law that He might fulfill it in righteousness for us. He humbled Himself. He who was God of God, light of light, very God of very God. Think about it. Paul says that He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
But Paul doesn't stop there in Philippians chapter 2. But he goes on and he says, Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And it's for this reason, it is for this reason that our gospel zeal is ultimately an appeal for worship. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. By God's grace, we are privileged for the praise of one. Not hiding, nor harboring such favor, but sharing it. Indeed, shouting, let the nations be glad and sing for joy. As it is exclaimed in heaven, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And so church family, we are a privileged people. Privileged for the praise of one. Let us share the treasure. Let heaven and earth praise the Lord. Let's pray. Our gracious God in heaven, we ask You that You would give us hearts that love You and love our neighbor. How often our sin nature rears its ugly head, leading us to not love, but hate our neighbor. We ask that You would forgive us. We ask that by the power of Your Spirit, You would enable us. Our desire, our heart's desire as Your privileged people is to love You with all our heart, our soul, our might, and to love our neighbor as ourself. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon. We hope you have grown in your knowledge of and love for God. Covenant Presbyterian is a PCA church that meets for worship on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. Our address is 120 North 9th Street in historic downtown Fortsmouth, Arkansas. For more information about Covenant, visit our website at www.cpcfs.org.